the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thanks for joining us. Follow us at danproftshow.com and on social media at danproftshow as well as at danproft. Uh, we begin uh, this Thursday installment uh, by focusing on the announcement of the grand jury findings in the Breonna Taylor case in Louisville, Kentucky, the announcement made by Attorney General Daniel Cameron yesterday. And, of course, because there were not charges, there were not homicide charges filed against any of the officers involved in the um, surveillance and investigation of drug operations in Louisville, Kentucky, that ultimately led to this confrontation at Breonna Taylor's apartment because there were not those charges filed in connection with Breonna Taylor's killing. The protesting ensued, not just in Louisville, but around the country, and it turned violent in Louisville with two police officers being shot. Let's start there before we get back to the sum and substance of the case with Louisville Police Chief, Interim Police Chief Robert Schroeder on those two officers. At about 8.30 tonight, our officers were called to the area of Brooklyn College on a large crowd and shots fired in the area. As they were deploying to investigate what was going on at first in Broadway, shots rang out and two of our officers were shot. Both officers are currently undergoing treatment at University Hospital. One is in alert and stable. The other officer is currently undergoing surgery and stable. We do have one suspect in custody. And the suspect in custody, that's uh, good news. The other good news is that uh, apparently the injuries were non-life-threatening. Both officers expected to be, survive, but this is not a inconsequential matter. One of the officers reportedly was shot four times, so it's a minor miracle that he is apparently going to survive. And uh, one of the officers may, they were not identified as of our discussion, but uh, one of the officers uh, also uh, may be black American because um, a black American gentleman posted on Twitter about uh, his son being one of the officers shot and asking for prayers. And he was a black gentleman. So we'll find out. But I mean, just again, to, to suggest that uh, everything has to be forced through this black, white prism, a lot more complicated than the identitarian left would have you believe. In addition to the fact that, of course, uh, the nation was introduced to Daniel Cameron uh, because he spoke at the Republican National Convention, a talented young attorney, 34 years old only, first uh, Republican attorney general uh, of the state of Kentucky since Reconstruction. And Daniel Cameron made two important points in his very impressive, very thorough, very measured, hour-long press briefing on the topic. Uh, First, as to the issue of the no-knock warrant, which has been the subject of so much debate and discussion, criticism, Uh, no-knock warrants now prohibited in the jurisdiction as a result of this case. Well, that no-knock warrant may have been issued, but uh, apparently, per the investigation, that's not how it actually went down. Evidence shows that officers both knocked 
and announced their presence at the apartment. The officer's statements about their announcement are corroborated by an independent witness who was near in a proximity to apartment four. In other words, the warrant was not served as a no-knock warrant. And the uh, second important point among a lot to discuss here is the person who initiated the confrontation. In other words, the person who shot first. Was it uh, Louisville police that barged into Brianna Taylor's home and opened fire indiscriminately? Or was it in response to her friend, uh, a gentleman named Kenneth Walker, firing first? Kenneth Walker fired the shot that hit Sergeant Mattingly. And there is no evidence to support that Sergeant Mattingly was hit by friendly fire from other officers. Mr. Walker admitted that he fired one shot and was the first to shoot. In addition to all the testimony, the ballistics report shows that the round that struck Sergeant Mattingly was fired from a 9mm handgun. The LMPD officers fired 40 caliber handguns. For more on all this uh, expert uh, perspective, we're pleased to be joined again by Brandon Tatum, founder of the Tatum Report, TatumReport.com, also a former Tucson police officer. Brandon Tatum, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Any uh, question you have about the uh, charges that were ultimately approved by the grand jury in Louisville? Do you think uh, that was a, a an appropriate finding by that grand jury, what they did and what they didn't do? Yeah, I think the grand jury did their job. Uh, they found the one officer guilty of indiscriminately firing into a, a structure without even knowing what he's firing at. So right. that was justified. And the two other officers were acting in reasonable self-defense and using deadly force against a person who had shot at them. So the, the charges were appropriate. I don't see how anybody's confused about that unless they want revenge instead of justice. Yeah, I mean, the, the argument is that Breonna Taylor was murdered, that uh, they barged into Breonna Taylor's home, and thus her friend shot back in self-defense uh, a lot under the auspices of the Castle Doctrine because he didn't know who just barged in, and so he was just trying to protect himself and perhaps his friend Breonna. But uh, that's sort of undermined by the finding that Cameron announced that uh, actually police announced themselves before barging in. And if they would have gotten compliance, there probably would have been no violence. Right. I mean, the, the method that they used is what we consider to be simultaneous warrants. So they were able to secure no knock warrants on all the residents that they were going to approach. Given the fact that Jamarcus Glover could have been at any one of those residents, he was obviously the dangerous person involved in this because he's a criminal um, known to have firearms and, and, and such. But they were able to detect that Jamarcus Glover was at the trap house, which is another location. They conducted a no-knock warrant with the SWAT team on that location. But Breonna Taylor's house, she was a part of the investigation. She was on the search warrant independent to her house. But she was considered to be a nonviolent participant. So they decided to knock instead of using a no-knock exception. They knocked on the door. They announced. uh, They gave them plenty of time to respond to the point in which they were able to be woken up out of their sleep go get a gun, take a position, and wait until police officers forced entry before they fired upon them. So it was clear that the police officers gave them adequate amount of time to respond to the door. And any reasonable person wouldn't just shoot somebody, you know, at their door. You would, you would, you would think that they would at least ask, who is it? Go to the door, figure out what's going on. But when you're a criminal and you have been knee-deep involved in criminal activity and you know you're holding and running drugs for somebody – your expectation, similar to what the boyfriend believes, is that there's it's either the police or it's other gangbangers um, going to rob you. So that's the, probably the reason why they responded the way they did. 
and they were unjustified. The police did the legal rights, and they were justified. You mentioned Jamarcus Glover. He is uh, one of the principal targets of this Louisville police investigation. He is a convicted drug dealer facing a criminal prosecution at present and uh, was uh, a former boyfriend of Breonna Taylor. Um, what about uh, Kenneth Walker and whether or not he should face charges for uh, opening fire on police upon their entrance into Breonna Taylor's home? That seems to be perhaps something that's too politically charged to prosecute, but in normal times, wouldn't that be a prosecutable offense? I believe it should be a prosecutable offense, given the fact that a reasonable person should believe that it was the police, given, the, given the, also the fact that they announced at the door. Now, the conflict here, and this is why we have a court system that's very thorough, is that there is no unequivocal evidence that he actually hurt the police. Just because, just because they made an announcement doesn't necessarily mean that he hurt them. So, mm-hmm. um, and somewhat in his defense, maybe he didn't hear him. Maybe he was defending, um, you know, his, his, his domain. But at the same time, the police officers announced and they had reason to believe that he heard him. So, you know, we have that conflict in the middle, and that's probably why he didn't get charged. And I'm not too as weirded out by the fact that he didn't get, didn't get charged because it's not very clear if there's evidence the officers were heard inside of the residence. What, what do you think about no-knock warrants? Because this has been one of the uh, items on the the uh, uh, agenda of those who want to uh, advance, uh, you know, any number of police reforms, uh, banning no-knock warrants. Yeah, I think it's absolutely ridiculous to think that no-knock warrants should be uh, taken away. I was, I was on a SWAT team. We did numerous no-knock warrants. No-knock warrants, in the tactical sense, is more safe than doing knock warrants. Given the example of Breonna Taylor, if anybody want to be reasonable— if they would have no knocked her house, she would still be alive today. You run the risk of people being confused. You run the risk of people retaliating, flushing drugs, all of those things when you do knock warrants. And so in this particular situation with LMPD, they conducted a no-knock warrant on Jamarcus Glover with guns and other dangerous individuals in a trap house. Nobody got hurt. They did a no-knock uh, warrant on Breonna Taylor. Somebody got killed. So that's an example of how using a tactical no-knock warrant is more beneficial and safer for police, police officers in many cases um, than knocking on the door. And it's a shame that politicians have banned no-knock warrants and cited Breonna Taylor's case as an example. These people should be ashamed of themselves, and all of them should be removed from office because they're inept and they're not adequate enough to go beyond politics to make uh, real change to law enforcement. When we come back with uh, former Tucson police officer Brandon Tatum, founder of the Tatum Report, TatumReport.com, I want to talk a little bit more about Breonna Taylor, this question that was posed by Attorney General Daniel Cameron. Do we do we really want the truth, or do we want a truth that fits our narrative? I'm going to have uh, Brandon Tatum answer that question when we come back. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Before the break, 
I uh, referenced Daniel Cameron's words in his press briefing yesterday in the Breonna Taylor case. Our reaction to the truth today says what kind of society we want to be, said Cameron. Do we really want the truth or do we want a truth that fits our narrative? I suppose it depends on how you ask, but can we handle the truth about Breonna Taylor? In part, I think, is the question. The truth seems to be that she was uh, otherwise a, a decent person who was working as an EMT and but maybe she made some bad choices about uh, the company she kept, and that put her in a situation that was more dangerous than it needed to be. I mean, is that something where we can be honest with ourselves and have that conversation, or do we have to just say her name as the politicians are saying, the hashtaggers on Twitter are saying, uh, have a moment of silence for her and for this decision, as uh, my home city of Chicago uh, was admonished to do by the political office holders uh, last evening, do we have to do it that way or can we say Breonna Taylor's a complicated human being like a like we all are and sometimes we make good judgment calls and sometimes we don't and unfortunately the company she kept put her in a situation that was dangerous and uh, somebody made a bad decision and it resulted in her death when she didn't need to die. Uh, I put that question to our our friend officer Brandon Tatum, former Phoenix uh, excuse me, former Tucson police officer, the founder of tatumreport.com. Brandon, what do you think? Well, I, I, all people have to do is go to TatumReport.com, look at the documents that we have that was leaked to us, the entire investigation into Breonna Taylor, even Jamarcus Glover and others who we have transcribed recordings of his conversations from jail, they admitted that Jamarcus Glover put Breonna Taylor in a bad position because she, he had her running his drugs and doing all of this sloppy work in the words of his own friends talking to him on a, on a uh, jail call. They even admit that it was a bad position for Breonna Taylor to even be fooling with Jamarcus Glover, and they put her in a bad position. And they also, on the recordings, they blamed Kenneth Walker because he had no business shooting the police, which resulted in Breonna Taylor's death. If people want to be honest, and I'm telling you, Dan, nobody wants to be honest. Yeah, They want revenge. This is an example of not keeping company and not putting yourself in positions of dealing with hardened criminals, and you won't end up getting in this situation. Breonna Taylor was knee-deep involved in this investigation. She wasn't being investigated in relation to Jamarcus Glover since 2016. She was she rented a car where a murder victim was found in her car related to Jamarcus Glover. And she also is on jail recordings with Jamarcus Glover, participating in criminal activity with him, making sure she follow up with people who are running drugs for him, all of the above. So it's unfortunate that the young lady died, but Breonna Taylor was heavily involved in this whole thing. And it resulted in the situation that we see. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, this uh, in an investigative summary report that was issued by um, police detective who's now, uh, I think, under suspension. But uh, Glover listed Taylor's home. Jamarcus Glover, this former boyfriend, convicted drug dealer facing criminal prosecution at present. Glover listed Brianna Taylor's home as his address on a Chase Bank account. Glover listed Taylor's phone number as his when he filed a complaint against a police officer in just a month earlier for towing his red Dodge Charger for a parking violation. You know, the the interconnectedness of the two is uh, certainly concerning. And again, it doesn't mean Breonna Taylor's a bad person and nobody's trying to smear the dead or anything like that. But I mean, you ha- if you don't present all the evidence, then you can't make an informed judgment about the decisions that were made on, on both sides, on the civilian side as well as the police side. I just... Isn't that just reasonable? Yeah, it's reasonable. I mean, people, it's unfortunate because the media drives this, politicians drive this, and they are evil individuals that are doing this to our country. Because if people would sit down and just take a breath and say, okay, what are the facts here? I mean, was the police officer unjustified? Let's look at it from Sergeant Maddenley's perspective. He got shot. 
You know, how do you pay Breonna Taylor's family $12 million and, and Sergeant Manley gets nothing and he got shot when he was just doing his job by a person who had a reason to believe that it was the police at the front door. Um, so when you, when you look at the totality of circumstances, you just hope that we can get to a point in our country where we slow down, we don't pick a side, and we say, look, let's look at it from a Breonna Taylor's perspective. Let's get out of facts. Let's look at it from the police perspective. Let's get out of facts. And let's make a conscious determination of what can we do moving forward. Nothing that they're doing right now, Dan, is going to change anything in policing. You can cry, you can roll on the ground, you can defund the police, you can do whatever you want to do. But according to police training in the academy and according to reasonableness and the way you conduct search warrants, the police officers did nothing wrong. So there's nothing that's going to be changed as a result of these protests. And it's not going to happen that way. And unfortunately, the only changing factor that could occur here is that Breonna Taylor wouldn't do what she did, that Kenneth Walker wouldn't do what he did. Those things are changeable. But the things related to the police are not going to change. And these politicians know that. The other thing, too, is even a Democrat governor there, Bashir, made a call for people to go home. And he doesn't mean Louisvillians to go home to Louisvillians, if that's what they call themselves. I don't know. Louisville residents. He's talking about outside agitators that come into Louisville that uh, the U-Haul truck was spotted uh, near where the uh, the protests l- last night began, and they're passing out all kinds of riot gear and so on and so forth, things that have nothing to do with a peaceful protest. These outside agitators that uh, travel like a, a nomadic tribe from community to community to foment as much violence and destruction as, and, and shooting of police officers as possible. Boy, it seems to me uh, that... Um, that that needs to get more profile, too. And again, like Ron DeSantis is talking about doing in Florida, holding local officials accountable for not abiding their primary responsibility of at least making an effort to provide for the physical security of people and their property. A hundred percent. I mean, we, we're living in the wild, wild west right now. There's no freaking way that we live in a country where people can just go out burn buildings, shoot police officers indiscriminately. And the thing is that the police officers cannot defend themselves. You know what makes me so upset is because I went through police academy. I went through SWAT school. I did all the training. I trained new officers how to become adequate police officers. They are literally telling police officers to abandon everything that you've been trained, all the officer safety that you've been trained, and let people shoot you, hit you in the head with bats, let them point their finger in your face, all of the above. They're telling you to boy, the the you know, eliminate all of the things that you've been trained in order to be politically correct. This is putting police officers in danger. This is putting citizens in danger. Property is being destroyed, and nobody's going to stand up and recover that property. There are people, businesses are getting destroyed. People who are black, who are losing it forever. There are police officers getting shot because they got to stand there and just take it. We need to take a stand in this country. We need leaders on the police department and the city council, the mayor, the governor, to take a doggone stand and say this is enough. We are not dealing with this crap. You guys can peacefully protest. You cannot riot. You cannot have unruly gatherings. That's against the law. And if you're going to go out and burn stuff, you're going to go to jail. If you're going to put your hands on police officers, we're going to use force against you. And if you guys are going to rob a police officer, throw Molotov cocktails, we're going to shoot you. We're going to use deadly force against you because you are adequately putting, or not adequately, but you're putting people's lives in danger. We are, we, the police officers are sworn to protect the community, to protect property, and to protect and preserve life. That means that if there's a fear of imminent serious bodily injury and or death, police are tasked. They have an obligation to use deadly force against people. And we cannot live in a society where they can just take over the streets because they don't like a verdict. 
we're setting up a bad precedent that we're not going to be able to overcome unless we use extreme force. And the more they do this, the more crazy our law enforcement is going to have to get to, to combat this in order for it not to be, you know, some zombie apocalypse situation. He is Brandon Tatum, former Tucson police officer, founder of the Tatum Report, the Tatum, uh, TatumReport.com, and that's where you find that exclusive report he has on Breonna Taylor that he's posted. It's worth a, a look, TatumReport.com. Brandon Tatum, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks, man. Thanks, Tom. Show.com. Welcome back to the program. Well, uh, following up on our conversation with uh, Officer Tatum about uh, the Breonna Taylor case and the ensuing rioting in Louisville, two police officers shot, who thankfully will survive, it's reported. And uh, the unrest elsewhere in the country, as we've seen almost nonstop, depending on the locale since Memorial Day weekend. That combined with COVID-19, combined with, frankly, just the performance of Big Blue City America prior to the summer of rioting, prior to the COVID outbreak, is uh, really reshaping the American political landscape as it reshapes the demographic composition of the cities versus the suburbs and even the outlying more rural areas. For more on uh, the future, regardless of the outcome on November 3rd or whenever it may come, we're pleased to be joined again by Joel Kotkin, who is Presidential Fellow in Urban Futures at Chapman University, Executive Director of Urban Reform Institute, and the author of the uh, book I've mentioned uh, numerous times, The Coming of Neo-Feudalism. Joel Kotkin, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Your piece, uh, Blue Today, Bluer Tomorrow, uh, interesting because it... uh, it begins with um, the work product of a demographer named Wendell Cox at the Urban Reform Institute. It really um, shows the potential seismic shifts that are happening in this country as minority populations are increasingly finding big city America, the New Yorks and the L.A.s and the Chicago's, less to their liking in terms of their, their interest in a, the future for themselves uh, financially, public safety-wise, uh, education for their kids. And it's the smaller, mid-sized urban centers and the suburbs that provide more opportunity and are attracting more minorities, a majority of which live now in suburban communities and outlying areas, according to uh, the research you cited. Well, yeah, and then this is all from the Census Bureau. And, you know, what's clear is, like other people, previous generations, millennials also, and minorities um, and immigrants are all heading, A, to suburbs, you know, as much as they can afford to do so. I mean... There's clearly a population, for instance, let's say in Chicago, that's in south side communities, and they just don't have the resources or the opportunities to move. But a large part of the African-American, for instance, middle class in Chicago, now lives in the suburbs, um, and, and including you know, friends of mine. So I, I can understand that basically people are really not all that different. I mean, they may, mm-hmm. they may celebrate different holidays and have different beliefs, but... Fundamentally, most people want a, particularly when they get into their 30s, they want a, a single-family home or a spacious townhome or, or apartment. They want safe schools. They want less crime. They want you know, public order, of, of, at least to some extent, better education. 
I mean, you know, the 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 aspirations of people just aren't all that different. Uh, on the and, on, and on the home ownership front, um, there's some, a real divide in terms of the level of home ownership and you know, sort of the the uh, indicia of middle income family living, at least for starts, wealth creation. A uh, big difference, uh, minority families uh, from the bigger cities, the old big cities like I'm talking about, and some of the burgeoning cities. Definitely. I mean, and, and, and they really see the differences in places like New York, California, uh, Boston, Chicago also somewhat lags, but um, Chicago prices are not remotely as, as bad as they are here on the West Coast. So, so I think that, you know, what you, what, what you fundamentally have is you have sort of two dialogues uh, or, you know, or almost more two monologues. One, one is, you know, the, the minority population is stuck in the ghettos and, you know, we, we need to, you know, we need to uh, move them, you know, into uh, you know, better housing so we can replace them with yuppies. Um, or there's this other one, which is what do people actually want? I mean, this is what I find astounding is how little the political discussion gets into what actually are people's aspirations. I mean, even if you look at, for instance, uh, the Black Lives Matter uh, protests, most African-Americans don't want fewer police they want more police i mean you right. know, i mean the um it, what's really interesting is in many places what we're finding is the african-american politicians are actually more likely to not want to defund the police than the people who who are like like you take portland i mean portland is the whitest big city in america and and it's had the most insane protests and by the way seattle um, and Minneapolis are also historically very white cities, um, and so it's it's some sort of psychosis <laughs> taking place among among you know the the white progressives that have driven them into yeah. some incredibly bizarre universe. It's a radical radical chic times ten. Uh, when we come back, um, uh, I want to ask uh, Joel Kotkin what uh, this rather jarring stat he he referenced from uh, Gallup survey work. Barely one in eight Americans want to live in a big city. That, that is just stunning and what that means to our politics. And more with Joel Kotkin, presidential fellow in Urban Futures at Chapman University, author of The Coming of Neo-Feudalism. We'll be right back. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the program. We're speaking with Joel Kotkin, Presidential Fellow in Urban Futures at Chapman University, Executive Director of the Urban Reform Institute and author of the book, The Coming of Neo-Feudalism. Maybe the coming of neo-feudalism will be delayed based on these demographic shifts, Joel. I mean, I, I, as I said before the break, the idea per Gallup that uh, barely 13 percent of Americans say they want to live in a big city. Boy, uh, that is bad news to uh, those people who rent tower cranes and open uh, retail storefronts on uh, commercial strips, isn't it? Well, I think actually, I think that is true, you know, again, depending on where you are. But I think, you know, if we start to see, and I think it's inevitable, by the way, I thought it was going to happen over time. It just happened faster than I expected. When you have from 6% of the population working at home to, let's say, at the end of all this, 20, 25, maybe 30%, that changes everything. So all of a sudden, that fancy office in the loop is not 
really um, as attractive. It's not going to have as many people coming in. They're going to have to socially distance. A lot of people are not going to want to take the train into work. And so you're going to have greater dispersion of economic opportunity. You know, and I think what we're going to see is, is at the same time as people live in, whether it's in small towns or let's say in the Chicago suburbs, those communities will start to have more amenities. People will spend more of their time in their communities as opposed to spending so much of their lives getting back and forth from the loop. Now, so it's going to be this change that we're going through, plus the reduction in travel, business travel in particular, is going to mean that cities like the core of Chicago are just going to have to reinvent themselves as something that is more human scale. And the real <laughs> opportunities are going to be in suburban and small towns. And- yeah, I know. But, but I mean, that's sort of like telling coal miners to learn how to code. I mean, that is going to be a pa- <laughs> that is going to be a painful transition, man. I mean, that think about uh, those mass transit systems like you're talking about. I don't think the MTA outlawing defecating, formally outlawing it uh, is going to be enough to bring ridership back. But the political class is going to be pressure to keep everybody's phony baloney jobs at their phony baloney rates uh, in big cities like New York and Chicago and L.A. And you're going to have a real credit crunch, uh, you know, the likes of which we haven't seen in uh, maybe since New York in the 70s, but, but perhaps even worse. Well, you're definitely on to something there, because I think one of the things that we're seeing is, for instance, what's going to happen to the people who hold the mortgages of luxury? Absolutely. Commercial real estate developers and, and property owners, too. I mean, you you see that the, uh, the value of your property cut by 50, 75 percent, maybe more like ridership has been cut on these transit systems. And how do you how do you dig out from underneath that? Well, I think there's going to be a huge haircut. And now the hope is that capital will redeploy uh, over time to accommodate how people actually are working and living and where they're migrating, where businesses are going. But there's going to be a very serious hangover because luxury properties, particularly in big cities, I mean, you know, I consider Chicago downtown probably the most beautiful downtown in the world. Yeah. And I've traveled a lot, so I think I can say that with you know some assuredness. But even that is not going to be able to be worth what it once was worth. What will hold up and what Chicago and other big cities need to do is to really focus on their neighborhoods. What makes a, a city great is not just its downtown and its fanciest buildings, but great neighborhoods. And Chicago ha- has that that framework of neighborhoods, but jobs and opportunity and investment has to go into the neighborhoods instead of what you get in cities like Chicago is this desperate attempt where, you know, oh, we've got the fanciest of this and we've got the best that and we're building the 12th luxury hotel. Meanwhile, not paying attention to the neighborhoods, which are the are going to become even more important in the future of cities like Chicago, as the downtown central core becomes relatively less important. Well, you know, it, it's going to be hard because the, you you have uh, political ruling classes, as you well know, you've written about that are committed to economic suicide, and their response to what you see looming is to uh, essentially press down on the path to economic suicide. Case in point. Uh, where you are now in California, Governor Gavin Newsom responding to locking down California by announcing the the banning of uh, sale of gas-powered cars beginning in 2035. This is not a political class that has its eye on the immediate challenges to, um, to, to, to Western civilization. Well, I think, you know, for Newsom in particular, and I think for some politicians as well, but California is unique in its craziness. You know, for someone like Newsom, what a great excuse. 
oh, we had fires. Well, it must be climate change. It had nothing to do with the fact that I'm an incompetent boob and I right. screwed it up and that my predecessor screwed it up. You know, we have a drought. Okay, we have had droughts. This is a, a part of the world that has had problems with water from the beginning, you know, always. So instead of saying, okay, what do we do to accommodate what might be a trend towards drier weather? Maybe, maybe not. We know it's hard to predict. But let's say you, you take that. You have policies to address it. But, you know, I would say climate change in, in particular has become the equivalent of what in the, Middle East, in the medieval times. This is one of the points of neo-feudalism. In medieval times, if something went wrong, the ruler said, well, it's God's will. Well, now it's it's the you know it's climate's will. Mother Gaia's you know, will, right? That way you you can deflect criticism because you can always blame things. And what I find is, if I talk to people who read the New York Times, listen to NPR every single day, and they they have no idea what's really going on. They have no idea that there are some very serious and sophisticated debates, whether it's about the pandemic or about or about uh, um, economics, or about, or about climate change, because essentially we now have a, you know, a Sovietized uh, media in large. You know, we still have some opposition out there, but the major papers, and I worked for them, so I, you know, I, 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 I say this with great sadness. I, I used to have a monthly column in the New York Times in the business section. I, you know, it's tragic that I, I can't even read the New York Times without thinking, okay, so this memo must have come from the Democratic National right. or from the, or or from the, you know, the Sierra Club. I, you know, it's not they're not even trying to say, well, you know, there may be another side to it. Like for instance, you mentioned the car ban and the idea of of everything going electric. Well, we don't have the electrical capacity to do it. Uh, Joel, let's hold it there, and when we come back, I want to let you uh, finish your story about uh, talking to those truck drivers with respect to uh, alternative energy, uh, and, uh, and 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 also take a, a get a, a bit of a top line on the uh, political culture in in a zany place like California. More with Joel Cockin when we come back. Back with the coming of neo feudalism's author Joel Cockin before the break, discussing the political ruling class's uh, commitment to economic suicide. Uh, per uh, and a prime example being California Governor Gavin Newsom uh, announcing that uh, no gas fuel cars will be sold in California starting in 2035. And uh, you were talking about how some truck drivers receive this, since uh, you know energy is and the associated costs are critical to their ability to make money. I've been talking to truckers at the Port of L.A. who are perfectly happy to go to 99% reduced emissions, recycled natural gas. They're happy to do that. To go to electric is ruinous financially. It doesn't work very well. 
And here you've got these guys, they're predominantly Latino, who are working really hard at the port of Los Angeles, the largest port in North America, and they're being told that their livelihoods are going to be destroyed so that Gavin Newsom can get in front of a camera and see himself as a, a climate hero. You sit there and you say, we have the highest poverty rate in the United States here in California. And we're, and we're worried about banning gas-powered automobiles in 2035? No, I mean, I think that's uh, that's well stated and that uh, the conversation you had with those truckers, too. And it speaks to uh, how you conclude uh, this very good piece that I, I mentioned uh, before the break, Blue Today, Blue or Tomorrow, that I read over at nationalreview.com. So the obstacle is sort of obvious. Uh, ruling class politicians looking to virtue signal their way to the next office, like Gavin Newsom, rather than address pragmatic challenges. That seems to be a political opportunity for anyone or any party that wants to focus their purpose on addressing pragmatic challenges, especially pragmatic challenges as people uh, change their environs to the suburbs and to exurban areas. Well, and, and that's going to be an interesting change because, yes, there are many people, conservative friends of mine, who will say, well, when the millennial moves from San Francisco to a suburb of Dallas, they're going to bring blue politics with them. And that's true to some extent. But I think the, if that is involved with owning a house, having children, putting them in the public schools, that tends to change how you view things. I mm-hmm. mean, the base of the Democratic Party increasingly is not the working class, which they've really lost, but particularly the white working class. But, but, but the base is really people without children or unmarried people. That has really become the base. If Americans go and buy a house, send their kids to public school, have a family, their politics are going to go to the center. I mean, I don't want to see a right-wing surge either. What I'd like to see is something where you say, okay, here are the real problems people have. So how can we deal with them in a way that, let's say, like the lockdowns? If you're going to do the lockdowns, how can you do them in ways that minimize the economic damage? Maybe policies that you have to do in the heart of Chicago, you don't have to do in the exurbs because people are far less exposed. What we end up with is sort of this politics that's driven by a, you know, a small group of people. And the scariest thing is that the corporate elite has now merged with the progressives. He is Joel Kotkin, presidential fellow in Urban Futures at Chapman University, executive director of the Urban Reform Institute and author of, you're just referencing, The Coming of Neo-Feudalism. Joel Cockett, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Take care. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Ian, uh, we turn our attention to um, uh, the latest contentiousness uh, related to COVID-19 policymaking, and uh, that would necessarily include Rand Paul and Tony Fauci, Dr. Tony Fauci, who've uh, sparred before. Previously, when Rand Paul went after him on matters of balance and school reopenings, very good. This time he went after him on uh, which states or policymakers represent the best in COVID-19 policymaking. And he's not too keen on the uh, celebration around Andrew Cuomo in New York State. 
You've lauded New York for their policy. New York had the highest death rate in the world. How yeah. could we possibly be jumping up and down and saying, oh, Governor Cuomo did a great no. job. He had the worst death rate in the world. No, you misconstrued that, Senator, and you've done that repetitively in the past. They are looking at the guidelines that we have put together from the task force of the four or five things of masks, social distancing, outdoors more than indoors, avoiding crowds, and washing hands. Or they've developed enough community immunity right. that they're no longer having the pandemic because they have enough immunity in New York City to actually stop. I challenge that, uh, Senator. I'm afraid, because I'm afraid I, I want, please, sir, I would like to be able to do this because this happens with Senator Rand all the time. You were not listening to what the director of the CDC said, that in New York it's about 22%. If you believe 22% is herd immunity, I believe you're alone in that. Despite all of the things we've done in the U.S., our death rate is essentially worse than Sweden. Compare Sweden's death rate to other comparable no, uh, uh, Scandinavian countries. It's worse. So I don't think it's appropriate to compare Sweden with us. Yeah, well, um, you know, comparisons are made all the time going in every which direction. It's probably not uh, judicious to make comparisons at all when you say it, Dr. Fauci, because really we need more time to see how policies play themselves out over a year. In fact, that's what uh, Johan Gusecki, the former state epidemiologist for Sweden, said at the height of the outbreak this spring when he said, come back to me in a year and we'll see where things are at. There are going to be ups and downs. There are going to be partial second waves, as we saw play out right now. There are going to be things that we don't anticipate about the virus that come to pass. So this like living and dying on a day to day basis rather than sort of the top line takeaway seems to me a nonsensical way to make public policy. But that's me. As it pertains to the uh, seroprevalence prevalence issue and herd immunity, the exchange should have gone in the direction that Dr. Scott Atlas took it at the briefing yesterday with respect to the CDC numbers, which is to challenge what uh, Dr. Redfield has been putting out there in terms of the percentage of the American population that still has exposure to COVID-19. So Dr. Fauci, Dr. Paul, Dr. Redfield, now Dr. Atlas. Dr. Redfield today said that more than 90% of the population remains susceptible to coronavirus. Do you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I think that Dr. Redfield uh, misstated something there. And so the re last time and I'm going to answer your question if you let me finish. Uh, the, the data on susceptible that he was talking about was his uh, surveillance data that showed that roughly 9% of the country has antibodies. But when you look at the CDC data state by state, much of that data is old. Some of it goes back to March or April before many of these states had the cases. That's point number one. Point number two is that the immunity to the infection is not solely determined by the percent of people who have antibodies. If you look at the research, and there's been about 24 papers at least on the immunity from T cells, that's a different type of immunity than antibodies. And without being boring, the reality is that according to the papers from Sweden, Singapore, and elsewhere, there is cross immunity highly likely from other infections, and there is also T-cell immunity. And the combination of those makes the antibodies a small fraction of the people that have immunity. So the answer is no, it is not 90% of people that are susceptible to the infection. 
To help us uh, discern the opinions of the doctors, we're pleased to be joined again by Alex Berenson, former New York Times reporter, not a doctor, but he is the author of Tell Your Children the Truth About Marijuana, Mental Illness, and Violence. And he, of course, has uh, come to uh, some renown with the uh, reporting he's been doing on COVID-19 policymaking. Alex, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Do you find uh, Dr. Scott Atlas's addition to the task force to be as refreshing as I do? He's incredible. That's why they hate him, because he lays it out. He doesn't back down. He knows exactly what he's talking about. He's quoting people from all over the world. He's explaining it in a way that people can understand. You know, if you're Jim Acosta or whatever, and you really have no idea what you're talking about, it must be very painful to hear Scott Atlas demolish you. And what about on the larger issue that was being uh, addressed by Atlas and debated to some extent by Rand Paul and Tony Fauci and essentially Rand Paul and the CDC? You know, how do you suss that out for the layman? So Rand Paul is right about New York, by the way. He's absolutely right. New York had the worst epidemic in the world. There's no question about that. Both the number of deaths and the you know fatality rate as a percentage of population in New York are unheard of compared to everywhere else. So how that translates into New York doing a good job is anyone's guess. But, you know, Tony Fauci has proven, unfortunately, increasingly political throughout this. He came of age during the HIV epidemic, and he certainly learned a lesson then, which was that major public health crises have an inevitable political component, and he's never forgotten that. And he has decided to play to the press, and that's what he does. In terms of the science around herd immunity, Rand Paul is not the only person in the world who thinks that. There's a lot of modeling that's been done about this. You know, I cringe when I say modeling because modeling is only modeling. But there was this idea that 50 to 70 percent of the population would have to be infected and seropositive and others develop antibodies for the epidemic to burn out. And we have not seen that in reality. And in New York City, the infection rates, and this is antibodies, seem to be much, much lower than 50 to 70 percent. And yet the epidemic has burned out. The real question every epidemiologist should try and answer right now is why. And there's some theories as to why. One is that the people who are most likely to get infected get infected first because they have more contacts with other people, they're social, or because they're very susceptible to it, they're very old and sick. Those people either recover or die. Not everyone is at the same risk of infection. And when the most likely to be infected people get infected, the epidemic will burn out more quickly than you would think based only on its transmissibility. Another theory is what Dr. Atlas said, which is that a tremendous number of us are walking around with some kind of previous immunity to this because of our exposure to other coronaviruses. That's not proven either. There's a third theory, which just came out of a paper from Tokyo yesterday, an incredible paper that if the media were honest, would have been front page news everywhere. So what these researchers did is they recruited 650 people in Tokyo, adults, over the summer, and they recruited them, which is very, very important. This is prospectively done. Those people just sort of continued to live their lives as Japan had a second wave. And they were tested, not for the infection, but for antibodies. And these researchers found that 50 percent, technically 47 percent, of the people they were surveying developed antibodies over the summer, meaning that community transmission was incredibly widespread in Tokyo over the summer, if this survey is correct. So not one of those people was hospitalized or died. They were all middle-aged adults. Not one was hospitalized or died. What they also found was that a certain kind of antibody called IgM actually faded very rapidly. So that implies that unless you test everybody quickly as an epidemic is spreading, you're not actually going to know that people have been infected and recovered. Even with antibody testing, which shows much, much higher rates of infection than PCR testing, you're not catching anything close to the people who've actually been infected and recovered. I know I'm sort of going through a lot of stuff here. 
But what all of this says, it all points the same way. It all says the same thing. This has probably spread far, far more widely than Team Apocalypse wants to admit. And that means that it's much less dangerous. Yeah, that study out of Japan, just to give uh, some additional context, 650 healthy volunteers received at least one-tenth. Seroprevalence increased from 5.8% to, as you said, 47% over the course of the summer. It's not just that it was 47%. It's also uh, how the multiple from 6% round numbers to 47% over the course of just the summer. That's right. Nobody was infected in May, and half the people in this were infected. Now, look, it's Japan. There may be something different. About, I mean, you know, sure. Japan is a very ethnically homogenous country. People are tend not to be obese there. Maybe there are reasons it's different there. But people who are making the case that there is some giant second, third, whatever wave you want to call it coming, need to explain why this thing has burned out in Sweden why it's burned out all over the Sun Belt with no major restrictions. They need to actually start answering the questions that I and other people have been posing for five months now. One other point, too, just a cultural one, since you're a big city guy, too. The Met announcing it's canceling its season next year. So, so you're talking about big blue cities who are saying the absence of cultural offerings in big city America that, that you uh, had to suffer with this year, you're going to have to suffer with next year, too, it looks like. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, if I'm the mayor of New York or I'm the governor of New York City, I, I've got to be terrified by this. What is my value proposition now for people? You know, they're not going into work. The restaurants are closed or going out of business because they have to operate at 25 percent capacity. Crime is way up. And I'm talking about raising taxes and firing people. I mean, what, what am I offering to people? No, he is Alex Berenson, former New York Times reporter, author of Tell Your Children, The Truth About Marijuana, Mental Illness, and Violence. Alex, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. T-minus two days before uh, President Trump announces his selection to replace Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the high court. Will it be uh, ACB to replace RBG? I hope so, as I've argued this week. Interesting, since we were talking so much uh, earlier in the show about uh, uh, Breonna Taylor in that case and uh, the ensuing reactions. She hasn't been on the Seventh Circuit very long, but uh, Amy Coney Barrett actually has an opinion on a police reform matter that may surprise some of her erstwhile detractors because she would be, of course, a nominee from President Trump, so therefore illegitimate, according to the left. A case in Indianapolis, a detective named Charles Benner arrested because of his investigation, had William Rainsberger arrested for murdering his 88-year-old mother. Rainsberger spent two months in jail before he was released on bail. A year later, prosecutors dropped the case, citing a lack of evidence. And uh, upon further investigation... It turns out that Charles Benner, the detective in the case, acted uh, unprofessionally, misrepresenting crucial facts, omitting exculpatory information about William Rainsberger in his probable cause affidavit. It's a big problem. Rainsberger filed suit against Benner and the Indianapolis Police Department for civil rights violation. The detective, Benner, argued that uh, he was protected by qualified immunity. In a 2019 opinion, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit demolished Benner's argument that he was protected by qualified immunity, which is a court sort of invented doctrine 
the opinion uh, was authored by one Seventh Circuit Court judge named Amy Coney Barrett, who um, suggested that he is not, I mean, not suggested, concluded that uh, the detective in the case is not qualified, is not protected by qualified immunity. So, I mean, just her position on this in terms of a bad actor on the police force uh, may be instructive, maybe something that comes up in a confirmation hearing if we're going to have confirmation hearings amidst all of what we expect from any confirmation hearing involving an Amy Coney Barrett, which is attacks on her Christian belief system, attacks on her as a faithful Christian, and done so through the angle of abortion politics, through the angle of gender identity politics. For more on this matter, we're pleased to be joined again by Father Robert Sirico, the president and co-founder of the Acton Institute. Uh, Father Sirico, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Good to be with you. Thank you. Um, so um, what have you seen so far from the uh, public contemplation of Amy Coney Barrett as a potential replacement for RBG? And do you see what I'm seeing, which is uh, they're going to go after her for being uh, for the dogma living loudly within her, as DiFi famously said, um, probably not explicitly, but um, but indirectly through the typical issues they try to hold up uh, identitarian in nature. Well, I think the chances are very good that that's going to be raised again, though I think um, Senator Feinstein's, shall we say, um, undiplomatic language might be modified because uh, that really has been the recurrent uh, theme. And I'm sure she's been criticized even internally in the Democratic Party for that, because if you turn that question on a Pelosi or a Biden both of whom are self-confessed devout Catholics, I would imagine they'd claim that the doctrine or the dogma lives, you know, uh, loudly inside of them. So I think they have to shift the position. But there's a long-standing anti-Catholic bias in this country uh, that dates back to the Know Nothing era. The existence of public schools in this country comes out of that era because they didn't want Catholics to be able to form their children and their ideas. So I think this sets up, um, if indeed it is uh, Ms. Barrett who who is going to be the nominee, that this is going to be the the mode of attack. That and the fact that there are already justices on the Supreme Court who are Catholic. Right, but as you understand sort of the secular humanist perspective that is uh, dominant in American culture today, which is if you're a Christian, you're a theocrat. If you're a Christian in government, then you're a theocrat. You must be monitored very closely. That's that's exactly right. And the question is, is she a theocrat? And the, also the question is, if you want to see where a dogma lives loudly inside of people, then I suggest the secularists So the <laughs> place to look. Yeah, right. Uh, the... Um, this has already started, though. We talked about it a bit yesterday. Reuters uh, reintroducing this uh, alleged association that uh, or membership that uh, Amy Coney Barrett has with this uh, Christian organization called People of Praise. Neither would yes. confirm, but this was reported in The New York Times back in 17. And, uh, uh, of course, Reuters, uh, the reporter for Reuters, who won a journalism award for transgender reporting, uh, he uh, characterized People of Praise as a ultra-conservative Christian organization. That is not a character. That is not a characterization they offer of themselves. It's one that he offered of them. And so this is right. again a thinly veiled attempt to say she's some kind of religious extremist. 
even though the uh, auxiliary bishop of Portland, appointed by Pope Francis, also a member of People of Praise. Oh, I didn't know that. That's, <laughs> that's interesting. No, but I mean, uh, the ultra-conservative group would be the Roman Catholic Church, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> right. So, I mean, you're, you're, you're eliminating people who don't um, abide by these dogmatic statements of, of the left. Uh, I, I don't know particularly people of praise, but I am familiar with charismatic, similar Catholic charismatic groups. Uh, and all of that, again, in relation to a debate about who is a, an appropriate appointment of the Supreme Court is irrelevant because the Constitution says there's no religious test. If we're going to have a religious test for this, then we're, you know, we're changing the rules of the game because of this. Why, why does that not come up for uh, progressive Catholics? Why does it only come up for conservative Catholics or, for that matter, Baptists or, or Jews or whatever? Um, I, I wonder if uh, you can offer off, uh, also offer your view on how the, uh, the church has performed in this time of COVID, both with respect to houses of worship as as well as with respect to Catholic schooling. It seems to me this is such an opportunity for private schools generally, Catholic schools specifically, yes. and I don't know if it's being fully seized upon. I, I agree with you. Uh, let me be very honest. Uh, it, uh, looked at as a whole in, uh, in the United States, and I only refer now to the Catholic Church because it's a more easily identifiable institution than if you say Protestantism, you're, you're talking about 33, you know, flavors. Uh, but in terms of the Catholic Church, I think the response has been anemic. The message generally, the impression generally given is we're closed until come back when we open again. Uh, they, they've curtailed the services, I think, too severely. This is not to say that the... Uh, virus is not real. It's not to say that it's not contagious. Not to say that there should be shouldn't be uh, you know safeguards taken, but to close everything down in an unreasonable and inconsistent way. We don't hear these kinds of critiques about protests and and the like. Uh, our school is open, has been open since mid August, and it's functioning well. Uh, you you have occasionally somebody who has a uh, a positive uh, test result or even comes down with the, the virus, there are ways of containing this if you're acting quickly, and, and that's exactly what's happened here. Uh, we're functioning. We, we have about 25% of our capacity at masses, but to respond to that, we just increase the number of masses. He's Father Robert Sirico, President and Co-Founder of the Acton Institute. Father Sirico, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Great being with you. Thank you. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, here's a story that will get uh, very little coverage, except on programs like mine, other uh, Salem Network hosts, Wall Street Journal, editorial board opined on it. This, uh, the year-long investigation into the business dealings of Hunter Biden by... Uh, Senate Committee Chairman Ron Johnson and Chuck Grassley, they released their findings yesterday. And uh, the report makes clear 
a lot of what was suspected, a lot, a lot of what seemed obvious about Hunter Biden's flying off his dad's uh, positions in the Obama administration as point person for Ukrainian policy matters and thus Burisma as point person for matters uh, with respect to the CHICOM and thus his investments from Chinese communists and his private equity gambit. But it's good to have the evidence. And uh, also we found out some new things, at least things that had not been widely known if they were known inside the Beltway and they're memorialized in the Senate report. As the Wall Street Journal commenta- uh, commented, the report makes clear Hunter was profiting off his father's position in Ukraine and notably in China. Foreigners knew they were buying influence by association. The Ukrainian co- gas company Burisma Hunter h- hired Hunter to consult on corporate governance in May of 2014. That was only weeks after Vice President Biden took the U.S. lead in helping Ukraine fight corruption. Burisma was a top investigation target, and uh, British officials had seized the London bank accounts of Burisma's owner. No experience in Ukraine, no experience in the natural gas sector, and um, yet uh, there is Hunter requesting meetings with State Department officials after the uh, consulting arrangement, a U.S. lobbying firm in, uh, working for Burisma invoking Hunter's name as it sought a State Department meeting, former State Department official George Kent, who testified during the impeachment proceedings that uh, made uh, Hunter's position at Brisbane made it very awkward for U.S. officials pushing an anti-corruption agenda in Ukraine. Well, that's generous to say awkward. Committee uh, documents show Hunter's businesses received millions of dollars from other deals with foreigners during the Obama years as well, including a $3.5 million wire transfer in 2014 from Elena Baterina, the widow of the former mayor of Moscow. That's you know, and so just in terms of Russian collusion and an actual money trail, as opposed to a purported one that's never proven up the Democrats vis-a-vis Trump and the Trump administration versus what we have here with uh, Hunter Biden. Also uh, in, in the report, Hunter Biden paid non-resident women who were nationals of Russia or other Euro- Eastern European countries who appear to be linked to an Eastern European prostitution or human trafficking ring. Uh, the raw part also stated the investigation found the Obama administration knew that Hunter Biden's position on Burisma's board was problematic and did interfere in the efficient execution of policy with respect to Ukraine. That's a quotation from the report. Uh, the uh, report also details this web of corporate connections and financial transactions between and among the Biden family and Chinese nationals. Now, this is also documented to some extent in Peter Schweitzer's excellent book, Secret Empires. But again, the Senate report here. Uh, several uh, transactions involving Hunter, as well as Joe Biden's brother, James. This is documented in Schweitzer's book. It's not just Hunter Biden that was flying in formation with Joe Biden's political influence around the world and making money off of it. His brother was in Central America the way that Joe Biden, uh, the way that Hunter Biden, I was, uh, I should say, was in uh, Eastern Europe and Asia. Uh, We also find uh, that what Joe Biden said that he, quote, had never spoken to my son, Quoting Joe Biden, I've never spoken to my son about his overseas business dealings, unquote. The report includes testimony that he was informed and discussed it with Hunter, which is what Hunter said in an ABC interview last year as well. So Joe Biden is you know, not recollecting about that the same way he doesn't recollect 33 years ago at the time about plagiarizing Neil Kinnock, the same way he doesn't recollect at the time about his academic record that he hyper at, at, in the most generous the most generous context, hyperbolized. Uh, really, it's uh, Joe Biden, the fabulous. We get this over and over again, his uh, on again, off again relationship with the truth, most, mostly off again. 
Uh, be interesting to see the timing of this now. If uh, it becomes a matter for some discussion uh, in Tuesday night's debate, it should be. It should be all that was. And, the, and of course, Hunter, uh, excuse me, Joe Biden's response to this report was essentially, well, look at what the Trump kids do or something like this. OK, well, fine. Everybody's fair game to the extent that you have a, a, a policy role in the administration, as some of Trump's children, children clearly do, to the extent that uh, you could be profiting in any material way from your uh, father's position as either the vice president of the United States or the president of the United States. That's all fair game. I agree. So let's hash it out on a debate stage. I hope Chris Wallace uh, will have a chance between now and Tuesday to pick up this uh, report cobbled together by Senators Johnson and Grassley and maybe probe on these topics. Let's let's hash this out just like everything else. If you're going to drain the swamp, that necessarily means uh, ending a culture of self-dealing whether individually or essentially individually by proxy through your family members. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We've covered a lot of turf in this hour, beginning with uh, Alex Berenson, former New York Times reporter on COVID-19. Father Robert Sirico from the Acton Institute uh, discussion we just had about uh, the report from the Senate Republican chairman Johnson and Grassley and Hunter Biden. I want to go back to Berenson. Uh, One topic we didn't get to him with uh, was COVID culture as it pertains to a police state criminalizing uh, criminalizing public health directives. Governor Mike DeWine in Ohio uh, had impeachment articles filed against him last month by a few GOP legislators over the continued lockdown policy. He's been, I mean, not as bad as, um, you know, Marxist lockdown and bust artists like uh, my home state governor of Pritzker or Whitmer in Michigan, but uh, pretty tepid. And uh, we see how this is playing out. These mask mandates are playing out in real time. Now, the mask mandate in Ohio, as I understand it, is again inside where social distancing is not possible or outside where social distancing is not possible, but but not outside in general. And yet a one community soccer organization, the Avon Lake Soccer Organization, Ohio, warned parents the penalties for not wearing masks at games could be stiff. Quote, fines and jail time could occur under the new orders, unquote. The uh, Avon Lake Soccer Organization as parents to set aside their beliefs to maintain compliance and to wear masks at all times, regardless of your political or personal beliefs on COVID-19, there isn't a choice in the matter when it comes to the safety of the soccer season. Read, uh, read the email to parents. Well, um, there's a real world example of exactly what uh, the Avon Lake Soccer Club is talking about, even though it's dubious whether this is consistent with the public health edict that had been issued in Logan, Ohio. Alicia Kitts traveled to see her son play football. She there's video of this. This is at PJmedia.com. I'll post this at Dan Prof Show. This is remarkable and chilling. She is seated with her family at, at you know, and there's X's on the metal uh, benches in the stands for where you sit. Seated with her family, socially distanced from other families. In, in fact, from the angle of the video of this, I mean, there's barely anybody in the stands at all. And oh, by the way, you're outside. 
And oh, by the way, about what we know about transmission outside. But I digress. A police officer approaches her because she's not wearing a mask and starts to manhandle her. And after she struggles and resists arrest, he tased her into submission in front of kids in the stands, not to mention adults that were aghast. Well, sort of aghast. They didn't really do that much about it except watch and and try to make sense of what they saw happening. One witness, according to the Ohio Star that reported the story, said a child sitting on the metal bleachers got shocked when the charge traveled through the metal. According to Tiffany Kennedy, the woman who shot this video that uh, PJmedia.com obtained, Kitts, the woman in question, had not been warned for not wearing a mask prior to the officer approaching her. She also said that Kitts has asthma, and that's why she was not wearing a mask. So listen to how this went down. This is over a mask. It's not. I don't know. I don't think he can arrest her for not wearing a mask. This is not a warning. Taste somebody over a mask. Tasing this lady over not wearing a damn mask. And uh, the the tasing didn't really seem, I mean, initially, obviously, it was shocking to her, pun intended, but uh, it didn't seem to phase her. She got up and he he sort of forced her down the steps and out of the bleachers along with somebody else, ostensibly from the school in question, the school that was hosting the football game. I mean, you know, I, I say all the time, compliance prevents violence. And so I can understand being stunned that you were about to be arrested for not wearing a mask. It's hard to hear, can't really hear. Uh, what the officer said to her and what she said back until it escalated where she started resisting. So there's no point in resisting at the point where the officer has decided to put you in cuffs, right? This is something you have to handle in a court of law. But I can understand the resistance to say, what are you doing? And the uh, desire not to be embarrassed at your son's football game when you're sitting by yourself in football stands that hold hundreds. And there's like, according to witnesses, a couple of dozen people in stands and the Ohio mask mandate uh, again is limited to indoors or when you cannot socially distance. Now the school may have its own rules on masking, but it's unclear that you could have someone arrested if there was uh, non-compliance with the school's mask rules. In addition to the fact that if that one witness who filmed this is correct, she had asthma, then she could be ostensibly exempt from the rules. Most of the mask mandates have an ADA exception. Second, um, 
So so I'm not excusing the resisting arrest and, and her escalating the situation. Compliance would have been the better course of action. But, um, I mean, being taken to the gulag for not abiding a mask mandate. This is where you want it to go. This is where it's going to go. Where it's going to go when, you know, wearing a mask is a symbol of being morally superior as well as being wildly more uh, superior on the ignorance quotient. But that's where this is in the era of covid. Politically induced hysteria. Watch this video again at Dan Prof show. It is it is ridiculous that the officer chose to handle it this way. Um, There is no need for an arrest Uh, that situation. Again, not defending the resistance by the woman, but that situation. Would you ever want as a police officer or just as a citizen? Do you want people taken away in cuffs? This is getting um, pretty chilling. I don't know how else to describe it. This is damn wow. She loved to do the wild thing. Wild You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Uh, talking about November 3rd. Uh, some uh, interesting uh, developments in Florida political reporting. Republicans closing the traditional voter registration gap with Democrats. To a historically small margin in Florida, Uh, top Florida Democrats, local activists increasingly grousing in private about the pressure from Joe Biden's campaign to refrain to refrain from door to door canvassing or doing voter registration drives due to potential covid spread fears of muddying his message on the pandemic Hmm. politics on the pandemic. Shocking. Uh, A concerted voter registration drive by Trump's Florida campaign to register voters. Help cut the state's longstanding Democratic advantage to fewer than 185,000 votes, a gap of just 1.3 percentage points. In 2016, Democrats, by comparison, had a 327,000 voter registration edge over Republicans, now 185, according to Politico. So that's a reduction in the Democratic advantage by 44 percent in a state that's, you know, a dead heat right now that Trump won by just over one percentage point in 2016. Hmm. Um, related story, Holman Jenkins's column about voting in person. Pressies amuse themselves by inventing behavior by Donald Trump as the source of every problem. But any election involving any two candidates would descend into legal chaos if the margin is significantly less than num- the number of rejected ballots. He makes the point. In a normal election, one one hundredth of a percentage point of in-person ballots are disqualified. And about 100 times as many or 1% of mail-in ballots are. In the Wisconsin West, uh, Democratic primary in April, 2.5% of ballots were disallowed, the equivalent of three times Donald Trump's victory margin in 2016. In the last presidential race, 134,000 cheeseheads voted by mail. This fall, it's expected to be 1.8 million, 16x. 134,000 voted by mail, two and a half percent of ballots were disallowed, 1.8 million this time. 
Jenkins writes, we arrive at this cultural moment, not despite the mainstream media, not despite the Democratic worship of identity politics, not despite the enlistment of many institutions in the anti-Trump resistance. Hmm. He uh, writes about um, the uh, apocalyptic pronouncements from the left. I've always said the most universal press bias is the propensity to inflate claims beyond their natural deserts. Using Trump's nonconformity and bombast to turn him into the Antichrist to bleat about a threat to the republic to call him a proto-dictator takes the cake. It's the purest ninnyism. And don't kid yourself. It's, a much, it's as much a product of cynical incentive by desperate media outlets as it is the innocent groupthink of on-air simpletons. What does Jenkins recommend? One thing you can do. Vote in person. It's not more dangerous than going to the grocery store, and it will help reduce the scope, but probably not the occurrence, for November-December chaos. This is Dan Prof. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Thinking about uh, 48 hours from now when President Trump announces his selection to replace RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and uh, how quickly that nomination will be taken up and uh, shepherded through the Senate by Mitch McConnell, we shall see. But perhaps still some reflections on Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her jurisprudence before we get to whether it's going to be Amy Coney Barrett or Barbara Lagoa or somebody else on President Trump's shortlist. To help us uh, cover both matters, we're pleased to be joined by Kenneth Starr, Judge Starr. He served as a judge, including with Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the D.C. Circuit, as well as uh, U.S. Solicitor General and, of course, uh, Special Counsel in the Whitewater Investigation of President Clinton. He's the author of the forthcoming book, Religious Liberty in Crisis, Exercising Your Religious Freedom in an Age of Uncertainty. That's due out uh, next spring, and that's timely issue. And the next court is going to take up a religious liberty issue, as we've discussed this week. Judge Starr, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, Dan. Thank you. Before we get to uh, the future, the very near future, some reflection on Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You offered a uh, very nice piece on her in the Wall Street Journal. It seemed like you had a relationship with her. Maybe you didn't go to the opera with her like Scalia did, but uh, you had a good relationship (laughs) with her, too, even though you're coming from different uh, philosophies of jurisprudence. Yeah, I never uh, <clears throat> sang uh, Wagner to Ruth, but she had a very nice uh, singing voice. Uh, I can stay on tune. Nino had a great voice, Justice uh, Scalia. And I think their relationship uh, really embodied and reflected the reality inside our courthouse, which is we were friends. So you can disagree, America, without being so bloody disagreeable. <laughs> As we used to say, chill out. Right. And uh, so Ruth would be a chill out kind of person. She would never lose her temper and was just a a gracious and kind human being. And she didn't let professional disagreements get in the way of something that was more important to her in terms of interpersonal relations. She really believed in the idea of collegiality. Let's be friends. 
We can disagree, but let's be friends. Some of the comments, I, I mean, just one, one more on Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The comments that she made that were um, fairly aggressive for a sitting Supreme Court justice to make in the direction of President Trump, that she sort of later walked back. Do you think that was just um, an uncharacteristic of her, but it was a sign of the times and how politicized everything's become? Or was that just uh, her speaking her mind and, and uh, if she felt like uh, she needed to to uh, take, you know, ex- expand Supreme Court norms to actually make commentary on a sitting president, then that was all fine. Well, judge not that you be not judge, but I guess I do have an opinion. I don't think that Ruth Bader Ginsburg of the Court of Appeals would have dared to say something like that mm-hmm. uh, because she knew it was inappropriate. So it was undoubtedly uh, the spur of the moment. But, you know, the president gets people riled up. Yes, right? we've seen. People have just yes. strong, strong reactions. And so <clears throat> I'm very glad that she walked it back. That's the key. It's one of those. I repent. I shouldn't have said it. When uh, you have got a forthcoming book on um, religious liberty in this country and there's a forthcoming case uh, that we've talked about uh, all week that will be taken up by the high court next term on religious liberty. And and so the importance of this pick by President Trump uh, in advance of uh, protecting religious liberty that is under assault uh, from every direction. And and perhaps Amy Coney Barrett is uh, the best embodiment of just how vicious the assault is going to be. Well, it's going to be a very direct attack on her faith. The dogma lives within you. Uh, you know, Diane Feinstein's really infamous comment. I mean, why use a term that's so loaded, dogma? So let's face it. We live in a time of secularist hostility to religion. Groups have been formed to uh, challenge and bring legal challenges to longstanding traditions and practices and so forth. And it's so antithetical to our traditions as a free people. One of the most liberal justices ever to serve, William O. Douglas, wrote this. uh, We are a religious people whose institutions presuppose a supreme being. And he wrote that in the context of accommodating the practice of many school districts at the time, of allowing students to leave in public schools, obviously, to leave school one day a week, an hour earlier, to undergo religious training. You know, it started in New York, and you just walk down the, the street, and you're at your parish church or wherever. And we have really shifted, and, and that's one of the things I wanted to call attention to in the book, that we now have to be quite vigilant, and we have to become warriors, the peaceful warriors, we don't need to burn down the streets and businesses. This is happening you know, in Louisville and across America these days. But we have to be willing to do, I'll use a Christian reference, that the Apostle Paul, he did not hesitate to litigate. <laughs> he stood up and defended himself. And he, he knew how, I'm an appellate lawyer, he knew how to say, I appeal. <laughs> he appealed mm-hmm. to Caesar. I hope people know what I'm talking about mm-hmm. if they don't. It's a sign of biblical illiteracy, which is another sign of the secular age. So we've got to be vigilant to protect our religious liberties, not to coerce anyone, coerce no one, respect everyone's faith tradition or non-faith tradition. You should be protected in your beliefs or your unbeliefs, but also in your religious practice, unless they're the most compelling reasons to Um, step in and regulate, such as child abuse and the like. Okay, final point in in this whole thing. Look at what's happening in church closures across the country, right? In so many states, the most notorious that I know of is Nevada, 
that actually favored casinos over churches. Right. Speaking of the president of the United States, if, if you were advising and counseling President Trump on how to make a determination between a couple, three very qualified jurists, say Amy Coney Barrett and Barbara Lagoa and, and, and um, uh, one of the others on his short list, uh, what what would you say? What what are the qualities uh, or the or the things he should be thinking in making that determination? Easy to say, hard to do. Take the long view. Don't go for what might be right now in a bitterly contested presidential election year, uh, the more prudent political choice. Take the long view. That person, by God's grace, will serve for thirty years or perhaps even longer. You will be gone. You'll be long gone, but your legacy in that person will live on. What kind of legacy will that be? So take the long view. Take the person who best embodies those qualities, aspirations, and visions that you have articulated and embodied then in the list first in 2016 and now the list of 40 here in 2020. Take the long view. Don't go for a politically expedient uh, appointment. So should things like, you know, Alison Jones Rushing, who's uh, only 38 years old, uh, U.S. Court of Appeals, Fourth Circuit, um, very distinguished record for such a young woman. Uh, you know, it was, should something like she's only 38, you know, another 10 years of seasoning like uh, Amy Coney Barrett has or, or 14 years like like Barbara Lagoa has is, is probably better or per your take the long view should, you know, age and those sort of considerations just be off the table. If, if she meets the, the, the quality th- uh, threshold, it should be all about who you think will have that legacy that you're talking about. But I would weigh in that particular evaluation experience does count. Okay. It's one of the factors to be weighed in, in the balance because you have more of a track record and much more importantly, that person has more of life experience, mm-hmm. more of a chance to think and reflect on the great, uh, the great issues. <clears throat> Call it a maturation. You do not want the greening of the person, right? <laughs> on, on the Supreme Court of the United States. Oh, I just had a great epiphany. <laughs> uh, you know, I didn't have a rather developed view on this very important uh, issue of the meaning of the First Amendment, the meaning of religious liberty. But now I'm learning. Well, we don't need too much learning on the job. Well, right. We need open mindedness. Yes. But we need we need that experience and, and I would just call mature and sober judgment is very important. And and this is something too where there's some difference of opinion you know when because this is inherently a political process, a record versus not a record. Some argue including conservatives that better to have a blank slate so less for opponents to grab onto. Others, like me and I think you, argue, no, no, uh, an expansive record is as expansive as possible, so there is, you minimize the chance for surprise. Exactly. I'm, I'm in Dan's. <laughs> I'm, I'm in your camp. Okay. <clears throat> so uh, I, I vote with you. Why would you go with a blank slate? That strikes me as really quite odd. Uh, we'll head to Las Vegas and see what happens. No, the stakes are just too high. He is Judge Kenneth Starr, served as judge on the uh, U.S. Uh, Circuit Court of Appeals for the DC, for District of Columbia, U.S. Solicitor General, of course, uh, Whitewater Prosecutor in the Clinton era. The forthcoming book, Spring of Next Year, Religious Liberty in Crisis, Exercising Your Religious Freedom in an Age of Uncertainty. Judge Starr, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, Dan. Thanks so much. Take care.
Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. The left, uh, the D.C. press corps, I repeat myself, in their latest moral panic over a coming Trump dictatorship per the president's response to this inquiry yesterday. Win, lose, or draw in this election, will you commit here today for a peaceful transferal of power after the election? There has been rioting in Louisville. There's been rioting in many cities across this country, red and your so-called red and blue states. Will you commit to making sure that there is a peaceful transferal of power after the election? Well, we're going to have to see what happens. You know that I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots, and the ballots are a disaster. And, I understand that, but and, people are rioting. Do you commit uh, to making sure that there's a no, peaceful wanna, transferal of power? We want to have get rid of the ballots, and you'll have a very trans. We'll have a very peaceful. There won't be a transfer, frankly. There'll be a continuation. Uh, the ballots are out of control. You know it. And you know who knows it better than anybody else? The Democrats know it better than anybody else. Go ahead. Oh, heavens. Uh, here we go again. Uh, President Trump is uh, not committing to a peaceful transfer of power. That means he is going to install himself as a dictator for life. And uh, we don't like that, says the left, except as it pertains to shutting down the economy and abolishing First Amendment rights. That's where we want him to be a dictator. But we don't want him to be a dictator in terms of staying in office. Uh, this is, uh, of course, what beset the press over the last 24 hours uh, against the backdrop of the uh, protesting and some rioting per two Louisville police officers being shot in reaction to the decision on the uh, Breonna Taylor case. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Aaron Perrine. She is Trump campaign director of press communications. Aaron, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. So um, can you uh, uh, tamp down the fear of a, of a Trump dic- lifetime dictatorship? <laughs> yeah, uh, the president is, is not going to be uh, a dictator. He, he absolutely believes in the Constitution here in the country. And that reporter is, is uh, actually not a reporter. He's a, he's a gotcha kind of guy uh, in the D.C. quote-unquote press corps. Uh, he thinks that he's setting the president up there. And listen, there isn't going to be a transfer of power because President Trump's going to win. But this is what the media does. They try to sow chaos into America. They want you to believe that somehow President Trump is abandoning the Constitution, is abandoning America so that he can stay in office. It's like when he jokes around about saying, oh, four, eight, 12 more years, because that drives the media nuts. The president believes in the peaceful transfer of power. It's the media who is trying to sow chaos, not only into the election, but into the election results. They're going to want the American people not to believe that President Trump's going to win this thing. And, and you know, we, we've gone through this before. I, I know there's no institutional memory in the D.C. press corps, but but both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, uh, you know, complained about things that were going on in 2016 in advance of the election and were sort of coy about whether or not they'll accept the results. And we've had the same thing going on here between uh, the a- accusations from the Stacey Abramses of the world and many others that uh, there's a voter suppression going on to Hillary Clinton saying Joe Biden shouldn't concede no matter what the vote totals are. I mean, this is just gamesmanship going on on both sides, isn't it? Well, it certainly is on the Democrat side. And listen, I mean, if you ask Stacey Abrams, she's the make-believe governor of Georgia still. Yes. She refused to concede her race. She refused to say that she had lost and that Brian Kemp had won and is now the sitting governor 
Uh, it must be really awkward at the end of the day when Stacy tries to show up to the governor's mansion every day and say, like, you don't work here, ma'am. Since you invoked uh, uh, Harris, uh, she of the Harris-Biden ticket, she was uh, in Detroit uh, the other day and uh, in conversations with uh, Wayne State students and others. She said, uh, you know, we need to get way past this old way of thinking, this uh, fail thinking that more police equals more safety. We need to reimagine how, uh, how we serve uh, communities uh, that are uh, majority minority neighbor, uh, with majority minority neighbors and so forth. And that means spending more money on education and investment and so on and so forth. But again, uh, this uh, this idea that reimagining policing will be a, a federal imperative in a Harris Biden administration um, against the backdrop of, again, what happened last night with two police officers in Louisville shot. Yeah, I mean, this is Democrats trying to be cute with language, right? They're trying to be like, oh, we're, we're not going to defund the police. We're going to reimagine the police. This isn't Willy Wonka we're talking about here. There are two officers in Louisville who were shot last night in the line of duty trying to protect the very people who were on the streets only to try and be murdered, let alone those two officers the other week in L.A., one of them shot in the head. I mean, it's unbelievable what you're seeing time and again is this violence ramped up against police. Let's look at the facts here. There is no such thing as reimagining police. Democrats are just trying to be cute. They're trying to take away police funding, trying to cut police across the country. I mean, look at Minneapolis, Minnesota. They cut the police funding. Violence is, is going up there, and they're saying, well, why are we unsafe? Well, because you're taking officers off the streets. 90 to 95% of police funding goes to paying officers, making sure that they can go out and do their job. And so when you, when you reimagine policing, you, I don't understand why Democrats think you have to take money from the police to do the other things. Why do the two have to be married together? We need to stand with the brave men and women of law enforcement. And President Trump proudly does. Well, what's uh, his debate prep regimen like over the next several days in the run up to Tuesday's first debate? Yeah, he is. He is prepping. He is. He is doing a little bit of that. But listen, being president of the United States is the best debate prep you can have. Every day he's doing the work of the American people and standing up and, and making the tough calls and, and seeing what that actually looks like. I mean, he, you know, was he gave a speech at the UN, to the U.N. this week. He's out campaigning. He's out, you know, putting forward bold policies. He's he's doing the work for the American people that needs to be done. That's the best debate prep. I mean, Joe Biden apparently has now said that he is going to be doing his debate prep now. I mean, listen, we fully anticipate Joe Biden to show up for the debate. He's been debating for 47 years. He had, you know, vanquished a dozen plus uh, other Democrats to win the nomination. The president's going to take this seriously. And you know what? Joe Biden's got a lot of questions he's not getting asked on the campaign trail that he needs to answer. Like, why do you want to keep bracking around to get rid of it? Why do you want to raise taxes over $4 trillion? Why do you lie to the American people about that? It's going to be a strong debate, but the president's ready. Uh, are, are we done with any last-minute machinations in terms of negotiations between the two camps, but we, including with Fox News? Uh, uh, and there's no, like, you know, last-minute uh, effort to change the format or include something that wasn't already agreed to, uh, the, the, that, that sort of uh, detail going down. I mean, I just asked this because you had this bizarre interview that Joe Biden gave uh, to Telemundo this week where he seemed to be reading answers from a teleprompter in, uh, a, in, a, in an interview with a reporter because he said, I lost that line when he was talking about his policy of 
a hundred, a first hundred day moratorium on deportation. That was just bizarre. And there was no satisfactory explanation to it. Well, yeah, I mean, here's the thing. Joe Biden's campaign in, in any interview has not been able to say unequivocally that he doesn't use a teleprompter for interviews. Listen, it's not an easy conversation to have, but there needs to be a conversation about the fact that Joe Biden is not throwing his fastball anymore. He's just, I mean, he, he's clearly not the same guy he was when he was in the Senate in the 90s trying to pass the crime bill that, that so directly hit black Americans in the United States. So, I mean, we get that, um, but, you know, he's, he's not going to be able to have a teleprompter. And the debate is set, the rules are set, uh, the topics are set, and so the president's getting ready. Uh, Aaron Perrine, Trump campaign director of press communications. Thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Wall Street Journal recently came out with its uh, collegiate rankings, uh, top 500 colleges, something to this effect. The uh, indicators they used to uh, construct their ranking, 40% of each school's overall score comes from student outcomes, including graduate salaries and debt. 30% comes from academic resources, how much the college spends on teaching, effectively. 20% from student engagement, including whether students feel prepared to use their education in the real world. And 10% from the learning environment, which includes, but it's not limited to, the diversity of the student body and academic staff. Only 10% diversity of the student body and academic staff in the context of the learning environment. That's only 10% of the score. Boy, I don't know that the Wall Street Journal has gotten the memo about what's most important on college campuses, actually, to understand what's happening on college campuses and what the mantra seems to be among both the professorate and wide swaths of the student body. So uh, that sort of proportionality is a bit encouraging, uh, including the fact that my alma mater is in the top 10. But uh, I digress the issue of diversity, Uh, diversity becoming uh, the religion of the secular humanist left with perhaps identitarianism being its catechism if I were to make a Catholic analogy. We'll see how my uh, analogizing holds up uh, with uh, William Smith, who's a senior research fellow and managing director of the Center for the Study of Statesmanship at the Catholic University of America. He joins us now. William Smith, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. So you've uh, written a piece about uh, diversity becoming uh, its own pagan religion, Uh, clearly the case. And I I think perhaps uh, even more than one of many, you know, climate change being environmentalism, being a pagan religion and so forth. But but this one, diversity, uh, is really a, a bit more robust, I would argue, because I think the identitarianism politics and policymaking that's, uh, that, that we see happening at, at, in, in all sectors of society uh, is a direct result of this faith and diversity. Yeah, it was actually a sad column for me to write because uh, you know we're 
reaching a point in which uh, some people in the United States no longer kind of agree on the common principles uh, that we we shared throughout our history. I mean, uh, when Alex de Tocqueville came from France and toured the United States in the 1830s, he wrote that the United States is infused with kind of a spirit of religion and the spirit of liberty. Um, and what he meant by a spirit of, of religion was not overt religiosity where it's in your face. He basically said there's a, Americans understand that everybody's made in the image of God, and that promotes civil liberties. That promotes people treating each other with respect. And that spirit of religion uh, was important to the United States. It helped get rid of slavery. It helped energize the abolitionist preachers in New England and the Midwest to say, we can't tolerate this anymore. It infused the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King said, it is our great Western tradition which points in the direction of civil rights. But now we have this movement which basically says there are parts of our country, uh, the privileged, for example, who are devils, who cannot, who should not even be allowed to speak on campus. It's a very divisive uh, ideology, and it's a repudiation of our entire civilization and history. Well, 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 yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt, but, but I mean, it's 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 not it's more it's uh, more uh, surgical than the privilege, because you can be. A, a black entertainer, a Latino entertainer, a, a, a man or woman of the left uh, of privilege, and you can speak on campus. Uh, it's really a particular worldview and identity that uh, is is where you run into trouble. No, that, that's that's absolutely correct. It's not it's not necessarily a racial divide. It's a divide between those who are woke and and share in the woke religion and those who are not. You know, it's perfectly uh, acceptable in the woke church. For a very wealthy white liberal to despise and hate a white working class Trump supporter, so it's not necessarily a breakdown based on race. It's it's a breakdown based on sharing the woke values, um, and the woke values are quite intolerant. I mean, as you point out, this kind of a soft totalitarianism that first took over university campuses and and has creeped into corporations and is creeping into mainstream culture. Um, and it, and it's very very divisive, and I I don't see it as as in the long term interest of the country to adopt this kind of philosophy. You can't you 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 end up having all this strife and rioting and looting, and nobody shares any common ground, nobody shares any common principles, nobody recognizes a common history. Um, it's very problematic. Uh, when we come back with William Smith, I want to get to perhaps some of the mistakes conservatives make in trying to combat what he calls uh, the soft totalitarianism. Uh, more with William Smith, Senior Research Fellow, Managing Director of the Center for the Study of Statesmanship at Catholic University. Right up. Welcome back to the program. We're speaking with William Smith. He's a senior research fellow, managing director of the Center for the Study of Statesmanship at Catholic University of America. We're talking about the diversity as a pagan religion and, and my uh, friendly amendment that uh, identitarianism is essentially its version of the catechism. 
Uh, but I wanted to get to mistakes that uh, you think conservatives make in 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 uh, tackling, dealing with, responding to this pagan religion as its practice. Um, you start out by saying uh, that it shouldn't be glibly dismissed. The idea of diversity shouldn't be glibly dismissed. Uh, there's a, a kernel of truth in it, uh, in the fa- fact that diversity is a good thing. It's true, but it, it seems to me one of the things that conservatives do also is start from the premises of the left. You start from the wrong premises, you get the wrong conclusions. And the idea that diversity needs a steward. Diversity is naturally occurring. Uh, it doesn't need a steward. It's more a question of how do you organize society so that um, you uh, are uh, uh, you, you're in a position where you want uh, those from diverse backgrounds, diverse races, diverse religions to thrive. I mean, going back to what you were saying about uh, separating the identity characteristics and getting to the uh, common humanity we share. Yes, I, I think conservatives um, have made a number of mistakes, <laughs> and it, it goes back a long way. One thing I think is important to note is that conservatives are way too obsessed with politics. Um, you know, the, the conservative movement started, the recent conservative movement started with William F. Buckley, and his goal really was to get someone like Barry Goldwater and ultimately Ronald Reagan elected to the presidency. And once that happened, they felt, well, then we've taken over. We can change everything. Well, that ter- didn't turn out to be true. And in fact, there was all this bubbling, all sorts of bad ideas bubbling in the universities, um, in the entertainment field, in, in all the major cultural institutions. There was this progressive woke liberalism that was gradually taking over and conservatives didn't address that you know they i've talked to a lot of conservatives who said yeah yeah my my kid's school is all crazy and woke but you know he'll once he gets out into the real world and starts making money he'll he'll become a republican and a conservative right and you know it it didn't turn out a lot of kids didn't turn out that way a lot of kids adopted the woke religion and you see them rioting in portland and seattle and all, all over the country because they adopted the woke religion that was preached in the universities. And so, you know, my critique of conservatives uh, on this issue is that they should have spent more time concentrating on the cultural institutions. They should have made their own movies. They should have done things like Hillsdale College does and promoted a certain type of uh, curriculum that wasn't woke, that, that provided a history of the great traditions of Western civilization. And, and they didn't do that. They spent a lot of time worrying, time worrying about politics, as they still do. And politics is important. I'm not going to dismiss it. I, you know, elections matter. But, you know, it, we've won the presidency a few times over the past few decades. And that didn't change anything in the universities, didn't change anything in the culture. The woke culture continued to grow. So um, I, I think there's, there's a lot of places to fight this. This battle, and it's just not in politics. There are a lot of places to fight the battle for conservatives. Well, I mean, but it, it, unfortunately, to the point, and to the point of soft totalitarianism, everything has become politics. Every institution has been beset by politics, and and so the question then is, uh, agreeing with what you said in terms of what transpired over the last uh, half century, uh, what are we to do with the sorority Marxists and champagne socialists who lord over all of these cultural and civic institutions with almost uh, no exception, including now, you know, Fortune 500 America. Yeah, no, it's we've gotten ourselves in quite a predicament because uh, these institutions have all been taken over by by the left. Every single one of them, the foundations, the uh, the, the universities, corporations, uh, entertainment, you name it. Um, they're all promoting a certain worldview and conservative worldviews are not accepted. Um, and so I have no 
um, silver bullet to offer, yeah. only that we really, really need to concentrate. And conservative foundations should be thinking about funding uh, all sorts of things in universities that they're not currently funding instead of funding political activism. Um, yeah, and, and, and increasingly, too, in the digital age, where power resides, not just in government, but in the big tech companies, conservative thought can be even it's sort of this dichotomy, this, this strange paradox. At the same time as there are more outlets than ever because of the digital age, it's now easier to marginalize all of those outlets because of the digital age and what big tech companies can do to manipulate the information you can access. Yes, that's the irony, isn't it? The digital age was supposed to let a thousand flowers bloom and a million opinions to get out there so we could get at something that's truthful. And it's turned out it can be a, a, a totalitarian machine that can restrict the message only to certain approved messages. Um, and and that's, that's very problematic for conservatives. But again, you know, there are things happening. There are people starting their own social media sites on the conservative side. And, you know, I'd encourage them to do that kind of thing. Um, you got to start your own institutions uh, when the when other institutions have become corrupt. Uh, I wanted to, to get um, you to uh, expound on this other point that you made. You uh, sort of took uh, the idea of American exceptionalism to task uh, using um, a statement made by Secretary of State Pompeo that America is exceptional, a place in a history apart from the normal human experience. You suggest statements like that are also unhelpful in terms of trying to forge forge conversation about our common humanity. Yeah, look, I'm a very patriotic person, and I believe American cultural history, history and culture are remarkable and in parts exceptional. Um, but that doesn't mean that means what that means is when an American is born, they inherit this great tradition. But that doesn't mean they're exceptional because they're American when they're born. They can do things that degrade the, the, the cultural and history that they've inherited. They can do things that are uh, opposed to the history, the beautiful history that they've inherited. And the Pompeo comments seem to seem to say Americans are exceptional because they're Americans. And, and that I don't believe is true. I mean, I'm you know, Americans are like every every kind of person. They they can uh, they can act with malice. They can act with greed. They can do bad things. Um, we what we have that other countries don't necessarily have is an exceptional and remarkable tradition that we've inherited. But that doesn't make us better than anybody. No, it just means we have access to a better tradition. Yes, it's it's uh, very much like your job doesn't make you a hero. Your behavior does. Um, and so sort exactly. of the same thing. This uh, your identity doesn't make you a hero and it doesn't give you claim to anything. Your behavior does, it would seem. Um, that seems to be a distinction lost in the discussion. He is William Smith, senior research fellow, managing director of the Center for the Study of Statesmanship at the Catholic University of America. William Smith, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Thanks. Yes, I like pina coladas and getting caught in the rain. I'm not much into health food. I am into champagne. I've got two. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. One of the threads that ran through all of the topics we cover today from the uh, Breonna Taylor case, COVID-19, to Amy Coney Barrett's prospective nomination to the Supreme Court, to Hunter Biden, to in-person voting versus uh, the push for 
as much of a vote-by-mail election as possible, to the nature of the violence afflicting urban and not-so-urban centers around the, uh, around the country, better part of the last four months. What's a, a consistent problem, or at least a consistent feature of all of those problems, those distortions, the purveyance of ignorance? Yeah, the D.C. press corps. Good piece in the Wall Street Journal by a um, longtime author and columnist, I mean, Time Magazine for eons, Lance Morrow. Before reporting became, quote unquote, journalism. And this is not, uh, you know, Ozzie and Harriet's stylizing of what reporting used to be. But it's also not gaslighting the public into pretending that, quote unquote, journalism of today is anything more than partisan, ideologically tinged storytelling, story manufacturing and telling. Moral rights, it would be silly to idealize the old journalism, which had its problems, including excessive deference to authority, massive sense of omission in the scope of its curiosity. I would say persist today. Anyway, it belonged to a different world, but it had this virtue. The work subduing the ego of the reporter implied respect for the independent mind of the reader. Also, I would add, it had the additional benefit of providing much, maybe not always completely, but much better context and consequence for the reader, helping with the connecting of dots. And I don't mean to try to reach a conclusion. I mean the context and consequence that helps people think through and come to sensible conclusions about things. Uh, Morrow continues, the independent nonpartisan mind went out of fashion years ago in politics, media, academia, even corporate life. What's the situation in Annus Insanus of 2020? Not a sparrow falls without the New York Times and its news columns telling the reader that the bird was shot by a white supremacist. News is laid before the citizen's mind so packaged and tarted up with a narrative line that the simple facts are often impossible to discern. This is not honest reporting, but garish partisan fabulation. Its object is not to inform or to encourage reflection, but to stimulate feelings. Let not the listener or viewer or reader be detained by thought, but instead move briskly onto emotions. This is the sentimentality I often reference. Emotions which are the addictive and highly profitable drugs in which the big media traffic. News media has become the crack houses of information and all the while ruthless participants in the struggle for political power and what the Parsons on Morning Joe call the soul of America. Interesting parallel Morrow draws between the decline in journalism uh, and the deterioration of American politics. In both fields, he writes, we hold the lingering death of public trust. The energies that flow into the vacuum left by the departure of trust are self-righteousness, violence of mind, and an ineffable stupidity. The civic despair and hysteria that have become the style of poor, miserable 2020. Annus and Sanus, a long build to this point. I hate to end on uh, such a dour note, but it is a summary of the news of the day and the, which, the way in which it is received and reported uh, on so many fronts. The explanation as to why the nation is uh, so bitterly divided. We'll uh, try to find some notes of optimism, depending on where they truly exist, on tomorrow's program. In the meantime, thank you for joining us on this one, and we'll see you tomorrow. This is the Dan Proft Show.